0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with them, with me in them this morning to the book of Zephaniah, to the book of Zephaniah, not Zechariah, which we trudged our way through not too long ago, but the very short minor prophet Zephaniah. If you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, we have been in the minor prophets this month. Uh, we've been in the minor prophets in the season of Advent in order to see. Jesus here in the minor prophets, because as we have declared, as I've declared many times from this pulpit, Jesus is the point of all of the scriptures, and so we want to see him in all his beauty. There's been a familiar theme, though, the past couple weeks in these minor prophets. Hasn't there been For some of you, I know, who are new to the church, who didn't grow up in the church, we've got some of those folks here. You're maybe not familiar with the prophetic writings, and indeed, uh, the familiar theme that has been evident these last few weeks has been in the midst of the muck and the sin of God's people of old is a persistent pursuing God. Who though he must deal with their sin, he must deal with their brokenness because he can do nothing different in his very nature. In the midst of that, he promises for them a better future. And all of these prophetic writings that we've been looking at, they were written in a specific time and in a specific place to a specific People And so the promises that we find in them have been partially fulfilled for those people who first heard them and for the generations that followed them through the land that God gave them, through the security that God gave them from their enemies, the security that they were not experiencing and hadn't experienced for many years due to their rebellion But as we sit here this morning in Edmonds, Washington in 2023, it's a future that for us, these are promises that for us are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what I've sought to show us and and to have us meditate on these past few weeks and again today the promised one of all of these minor prophets has come and is coming again. It's a theme, it's a message that we need just as much as those Jewish people did years and years ago. To be reminded that into the rubble of our lives, Jesus has come and the promise of His coming remains and so that's what we celebrate once again this morning that's what we long for for what is still Now I'm about to read this passage we're not going to cover in detail like we may normally do as I preach through books of the Bible. We're not going to cover in detail every verse. I'm actually going to hone in on just a few verses and one verse in particular that is maybe the most amazing verse in all or one of the most amazing verses in all of the scriptures. And so uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. Verses 9 through 20 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Listen as I read. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. It's the most wonderful time of the year. At least that's what they say. That's what they sing. When you think about this time of year, what are the things, what are some of the things that come to your senses? What makes December feel like December? I suppose I might get 10 different answers depending on who I ask in this room. I know my kids have some opinions on what makes Christmas time feel like Christmas time. Maybe it's the smell and the presence of, of Christmas trees. In our living rooms. Maybe it's the beauty of, of all these tiny lights that we find as we drive around our neighborhoods and they outline all the houses and the bushes. Maybe it's the, the taste of peppermint in everything: shakes and coffee and candy and cookies. Or maybe it's the sound of bells, of singing. Of caroling, of that particular vinyl, that particular record, whether it's Bing or Boublé or Nat King Cole. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without some of these songs, right? Well, today I have the absolute privilege of talking about the most glorious song, the most glorious singing. It's a song that we all need to hear loudly and clearly today. And it's a song that we all need to hear in order that we might sing it ourselves in our own lives. There's a YouTuber that I like to watch sometimes. His name is Rick Beato. And he's a musician. He's a producer. He's a lover of music. And and I love watching his videos because he'll... Um, He'll take a song that I have heard dozens and dozens of times and enjoyed, and he will pick it apart musically. He'll remove the bass line to examine the chord progression, or he'll remove the melody in order to to really hone in on the the rhythm and the percussion and the beat that's taking place. It's really fascinating stuff, particularly for a guy like me who doesn't understand a lot of music theory. Well, I hope to do a little bit of a Rick Beato impression this morning. As we look this morning at the song of the Savior. That's how I've titled this sermon. That's how I've titled this passage and the message of this passage. This is a song, and it's a song that is pregnant with promises for us to unwrap. As I've spoken about the past couple weeks, we're here... During Advent, I said it earlier because all the scriptures are about Jesus. And so even here in Zephaniah 3, I want us to see that baby born in Bethlehem who came for us. So, three truths for us this morning to meditate on for the next few minutes. Three truths really about God's heart. Three truths that are found most profoundly in verse 17 of this passage. That verse I slowed down and made sure that we savored a little bit. Three truths about the greatest song ever. Three truths riffing on three different words the word presence, the word salvation, and the word delight. And the first one is this, the Savior's song is a song of presence. The Savior's song is a song of presence. And before we get to the the glorious good news and truths of chapter 3, we need to get a glimpse of what has come before chapter 3. Zephaniah is a short book. But chapters 1 and 2 have certainly packed a punch. And it's what we learn in chapters 1 and 2 of Zephaniah that I didn't read, but I'll read some of in just a moment, that drive us to the end of the story. You see, as we think about the presence of our God, the Savior's song is a song of presence. The first presence that we need to speak of is not a happy one. It's not a presence of good news. Let me explain. This book, this prophecy was written by a man named Zephaniah. Of course, we know very little about Zephaniah, but what we do know and we've been reminded over the past couple of weeks is that he, like most prophets, are taking the role of a prosecuting attorney. In the relationship between Yahweh and his people, Israel. These prophets come with the, with the with the words from Yahweh pressing his case against his people, how they have missed the mark, how they have fallen short, woefully short. And so sure enough, at the center of Zephaniah's prophecy is the coming day of the Lord. That's a significant phrase that we hear about over and over again in Zephaniah. The day of the Lord. It's a day of reckoning. Now, Zechariah prophesied during the reign of the good king, Josiah. One of the last righteous kings. Josiah had inherited a mess of a nation. In obedience to the Lord and honor of Yahweh, he sought to institute reforms, and he did institute some reforms, but they wouldn't last. Israel to the north had already been exiled, but Judah is apparently not getting the message. They're living like nothing could happen to them, certainly not what happened to Israel. That couldn't happen to them. And so God sends Zephaniah and he begins his God-given task with these words. Back to Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, that's one way to begin some words of warning We hear you loud and clear. God is fed up with His people and His wrath is coming. And why is it coming? Well, predictable reasons. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I will stretch out My hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut them off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roosts to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Idolatry. Same old thing. Israel has suffered and been plagued by the gods of other nations for years and They couldn't ignore the false idols of their day. Baal and Milcom, which is just another name for Molech. They either overtook the worship of Yahweh or they mingled the worship of those gods with the worship of Yahweh. And God says, enough. Enough. And then we read down in verse 12 of chapter 1. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. If we are to boil down what is plaguing God's people at this time and in this place, it's two things. It's idolatry. The lack of allegiance to Yahweh as the one true God. And it's complacency. And this word complacency here, this, this is a Hebrew word that is, that is packed. You can see if you have your ESV Bible, there's a little footnote at the bottom of your page. And it says, oh my gosh, I can't even read it because my eyes are so bad. Hebrew, are thickening on the dregs. Are thickening on the dregs. And that's because that one Hebrew word, uh, or excuse me, that one English word complacency has taken the place or has sought to try to translate three Hebrew words. The first one having to do with aged wine or the dregs of aged wine. The second having to do with With under, the word under. And the third having to do with thickened or condensed. And so the picture that God is giving in a very vivid sense to His people is the the thickening of the dregs. Basically an apathy, a complacency that has settled on the bottom of the cup. Idolatry and complacency. Complacency. Judah's just doing their thing. They're building their houses. They're planting their vineyards. They're making a life for themselves. They're cultivating the good life without concern for what's happened to their neighbors to the north. Without concern for what God has called them to be about. And the Lord says, enough. They must be roused from their apathy. They must be punished Now why do I go through all of that? Well, because that was for them. We don't suffer from any of that. We don't suffer from idolatry. Our allegiance is absolutely to the Lord above all things. We don't suffer from complacency. From apathy regarding the things of the Lord. You see, we too need mercy. I need mercy And this is the presence of the Lord that no one wants, and yet we all deserve. This is holy wrath. This is in-your-face judgment. That's chapter 1. That's chapter 2. And the only path to refuge, the only path to rescue from that judgment is repentance. And God invites His people to it in chapter 2, verses 1-3. through He invites them to repent and He invites us to do the very same thing. Brothers and sisters, it's mercy and repentance that makes the beautiful song of chapter 3 soar. Because I want to spend most of our time on chapter 3. Where holy wrath is replaced with holy hope. Where a God of judgment has been replaced with a God of mercy in the person of Jesus. So when we slog through chapters 1 and 2 and we finally get to chapter 3, verse 17, and the words, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is here. He is present. What is our response? We, we don't have to tremble. We don't have to fear. For Judah, they got a glimpse of this glory that was to come. God would return them to their land. He would dwell with them through the burning glory in the temple. But there was more to come. There was a greater condescension to come. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, not because He needed you, but because He wants you. He came to dwell with us. And that leads us to the second truth and the good news. The Savior's song is a song of salvation. The Savior's song is a song of salvation. Verse 17 is a verse really for you to memorize to make a part of your being. One theologian Calls it the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the God that we gather to worship this morning. The God who finds a way. He is the Father, of the prodigal Son, who recklessly runs to embrace you in your brokenness. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus is both the content of this song, and He is also the one who is singing it. Two ways Jesus has fulfilled this in this passage that we read this morning. Verse Fifteen, A couple verses before that verse I just read. The Lord has taken away your judgments. How does He do that? He has done that through Jesus. Romans 4-5 And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that's why I dug a little bit into that imagery of complacency, of the cup and the dregs, the apathetic, nasty, congealed dregs at the bottom of the cup. Because it's that that Jesus has consumed. Even though He begged in the garden, there must be some other way. Take this cup from Me. And the Father said, no, this is the way. And Jesus said, okay, I will drink it all. I will drink your judgment to its very last drop. And I will take away your shame. Verse 19, that's what it says. Chapter 3, verse 19. He has cleared away your shame through Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And because of that, He can say in 1 John 2, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. Your judgment, your complacency, your apathy has been consumed. Your shame has been dealt with. And now there is no condemnation for those who take refuge in the promised one here. He is not too far away, He has come near. A song of presence God is in our midst either for judgment or for good. A song of salvation. And finally, and most beautifully, the Savior's song is a song of delight. The Savior's song is a song of delight. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you think about When you imagine what God is thinking about you, what do you you imagine? How do you imagine God? What is His love for you like? It's the most wonderful time of the year, so maybe some of you are imagining God with a notepad, keeping score. You better not pout, you better not cry. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Is that how God is thinking about you with a notepad keeping score? Or maybe like a, like a dutiful parent who promised something long ago and now he really doesn't want to do it, but he said he would. Oh, dads, we've been through that, haven't we? Oh, you remembered that I was going to do that? Oh, shoot. Okay, I'll do it. Is that what God is like? Or perhaps you see Him as a detached and distant but dutiful uncle who loves you because you're family, and he sends you a nice check a couple times a year, but he's not really interested in knowing you. He's not really interested in being with you. He just gives you something good every once in a while. Is that how you think about God? Let me say clearly, those images are not the God that we've come to worship this morning. Those pictures are not the God that Zephaniah describes. Here's how one of my favorite professors in seminary put it. The cross and the redeemed people Who are the result of its sufferings are the fruition of the joy filled plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been pursuing since time began. It's a joy filled plan because His love for you is a song. Have you had anyone ever sing over you? Maybe when you were little when your mother or your father sang over you, how would you describe that? Tender? Dis- disarming? Wonderful? Listen to this vivid description that one pastor gives of this description of God exulting over His people with song. When I think of the voice of God singing, I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth, and nothing but fire. But I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm crackling of the living room logs on a cozy winter's night. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he is singing over me. He is rejoicing over my good with all his heart and with all his soul. We talked a couple weeks ago about this image, this picture of our relationship with the Lord that we find in Hosea and Gomer's relationship. And this feeds right into that picture of bride and bridegroom. Isaiah 62.5 For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. My question this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe really believe this? As the old commentator Matthew Henry said, God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. Romans 5 God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to see clearly. I want you to feel clearly from this passage that the Savior's song is one of delight. Delight for you. Delight for me. Well, our text helps us to know how to rightly respond to such a God, to such a great salvation. And so I want to close with just a few things, a few so-whats for us as we leave this place. First of all, in verse 14, sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart. That's directed at us. In response to God's song for us, we are invited, we are commanded to sing, to rejoice, to wonder, to worship, to adore, because theology leads always to doxology. You're here this morning, not for self-improvement, to be a better person. You're here not because this is some sort of social club. You're here to worship, to sing to the one who is alone, worthy. God is most glorified when our delight is in him. So, the response to his song is to sing ourselves in verse 14. Then, the second thing, verse 16, we see this phrase let not your hands grow weak. We're called to sing and we're called to have strong hands. Strong hands. The hand was a symbol of strength in ancient Near Eastern culture and therefore drooping hands meant meant discouragement. It meant depression. It meant defeat. And in light of this, God says, Yahweh says, fear not. Because we all know that fear paralyzes us. It immobilizes us. It causes us to always be looking over our shoulders, distracted from what we're called to do, distracted from who we're called to be. Remember studying the book of Nehemiah? And as they rebuilt the walls, constantly hearing the threats of their enemies was distracting. But the Lord says you need not live like that. You can have strong hands because the promised one has come. And there's peace. And there's security. And there's hope. And there's a future. And that's the last thing I want to talk about is the future. This glorious future. This new heavens. This new creation. So one commentator wrote, God created with His Word. God will recreate with singing. What a great picture. God's plan is to recreate a people for Himself. You notice all the I wills in this passage? I will do this. This is my doing. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, a people of diversity Chapter 3, verses 12, a people of humility. Chapter 3, verse 13, a people of holiness. A new people in a new heavens and a new earth with a fullness of a presence that we've never experienced before. That is what awaits us because of the Savior and because of His song. Brothers and sisters, there's so much richness here in the book of Zephaniah, specifically in chapter 3, specifically in verse 17 of chapter 3. I don't know what precisely you needed to hear this morning. The Lord knows. And I trust that you've heard that loud and clear. Perhaps you needed to be warned this morning of the wrathful presence of God apart from jesus perhaps you needed to be reminded that he knows your suffering that he has not abandoned you that he is with you perhaps you needed to be perhaps you needed to hear that he really loves you he loves to love you Or maybe you needed to be shaken out of your complacency and not responding to these things. Amidst all the singing of the season, we can't miss this song. The song of our Savior. A song of presence. A song of salvation. A song of delight. A song that transforms us as worshipers into a holy people filled with confidence and hope. That's good news. Amen? Amen. Let's close together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible prophecy, this incredible picture of our God that we receive. At the end of warning, at the end of judgment, there is hope, there is a future because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so Father, we didn't come here to be better people. We didn't come here for tips on this or that. But I pray that we would leave here as people who are more in love with you. Who indeed have been challenged as we've gazed at the vastness and the depth of your love for us. That we would be challenged regarding what that love looks like in our lives and with our priorities. Oh, Holy Spirit, do this work in your people for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.